Gospel according to John. Good morning. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 8. Uh, we're in John chapter 9 now. John chapter 9. It's funny, you're, you're in a chapter for several weeks or, or I think we've had a couple that have left almost a little further than a month, but John chapter 9, John chapter 9, the chapter that just keeps getting better as you go through it. Now, uh, one of the reasons I absolutely love the Bible and one of the reasons that um, I trust the Bible is because the Bible deals so directly and unashamedly, um, I might add, with the most difficult things in this world. Um, Nothing is skipped over. Nothing is swept under the rug. The Bible just takes these things head on and deals with them. In fact, I would even say that particularly in John's gospel, Jesus seems to almost go out of his way to create controversy, such as healing on the Sabbath when he could have done them on Monday. And I think the reason he does that is because in difficult situations are moments where more of Jesus is revealed and more of sin is revealed. And in these moments, he can warn us about the darkness and at the same time he can draw us into his glory. So scripture confronts these difficult issues and God has spoken. And quite honestly, as a, a child of God and as a pastor, do I thank God for his word? Because if I had to face these difficult things or if I, to, I had to shepherd with a Bible that was silent about these things and I just had to come up with my own ideas or own solutions to the darkness and to the brokenness that we experience all around us in various trials and tribulations, I wouldn't be able to bring you or me any amount of comfort when it comes to the things that are broken in this world. But God has not left us alone. He has much to say about this world and to its sufferings. And we're going to see just a little slice of that this morning. So as we turn our attention now to John chapter 9, we'll probably break this uh, chapter up into about three, maybe four teachings. Though it's all focused on one single miraculous event, as Jesus heals a man who is born blind. But let's uh, start this morning, and we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And I want to begin by reading the text once all the way through, and then as always, we can take a closer look at each of the verses more closely. So beginning in John chapter 9, verse 1, this is the reading of God's holy word. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he sent, so he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? 
verse 9, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam, Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. It had long been prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would be verified by authenticating signs, and specific among those signs, it was foretold that the Messiah would open blind eyes and to give sight to the blind. Isaiah, for example, prophesied in Isaiah 29, verse 18, that in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Every miracle that Jesus performed was an authenticating stamp that he is the promised one. He is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. Again, in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then again, in Isaiah chapter 42, and in verse 7, the prophet records these words of God the Father as he would address disciple group, the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come. God said, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. It had long been the expectation of the nation of Israel, and this long-awaited promised one, oh, he would come, and he would be a miracle worker, and he would open blind eyes. Even when John the Baptist was arrested and thrown into prison and began to entertain some doubt concerning who the Christ is. He sent his messengers to Jesus in Matthew 11 and they asked him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Jesus sent back this message. He says, tell John what you hear and see that the, blight, that the blind receive their sight. It is the mark of the Messiahship of Christ that he would, in fact, open blind eyes. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus began his public ministry, he returns to the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he goes there up on the Sabbath, and in this incredible declaration and this fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus is given the uh, scroll of Isaiah the prophet and he unrolls the scroll. He finds what in our Bible is Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads this prophecy to the crowd. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind. That was an announcement of what was to come in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But the Spirit of God had just anointed him, of course, in the River Jordan. And he was now endued with power from on high within his humanity to carry out his public work that lasted three and a half years. And and among those, he would give sight to the blind. Every blind person whom Jesus healed, this was, again, documentation that he was the Messiah. And what is more, every miracle that Jesus performed also was a validation to his deity. 
for it is only God that can take that which is blind and cause it to see. In Psalm 146, verse 8, we read, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus' healing in this passage cannot be explained by anything other than a miraculous divine power. That Jesus would heal blind eyes was the verification from the Father in heaven that he is in fact God in human flesh. And further, that he is a God who has compassion. That he is a God who draws near to the broken hearted. So let's now look at these verses together as there's a treasure of spiritual truth in them. And I broke this account up into four different segments. The first element we are introduced to is the problem. There appeared to be a problem. Verse 1 of chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, if you were to read the end of chapter 8 and just ignored our chapter chapter change into chapter 9, it would read, so they picked up stones to throw at him, because remember, Jesus just announced that he is the I am, that before Abraham was born, I am. And so they picked up stones we closed with last week to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Keep reading. And he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. Now, unlike some of John's other chapters, we don't see if there's a time break between the end of chapter 8 and at the beginning of chapter 9. It could be a seamless tapestry as Jesus is escaping from the Jews. He's on his way out of the temple. He passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. But regardless, we know that since Jesus sent the blind man to wash at the pool of Siloam, Siloam, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple as he passed by this man. What is probably very likely right at the temple, uh, temple gate as he saw a man blind. From birth. There are different words that are used in the original language to describe sight, and it would be easy for us just to kind of go right by this. But this particular word means to see with perception, to inspect, to examine. It literally has the idea to turn the eyes toward, to focus in, to give strict attention to, and to have regard for. Out of all of the many people that were there and about Jerusalem that day, Jesus walked in on this one blind man. This one face in the sea of humanity. This man who is a beggar, we learned in verse 8. Others probably didn't even want to make eye contact with this man. And yet, Jesus looks squarely at him. Jesus sees this man and is drawn with a heart of compassion. Jesus saw this man blind from birth. And though he's at high risk and in danger because he's most likely escaping from being stoned, Jesus stops to demonstrate his power, his compassion, his mercy, and even salvation on a blind beggar this reminds me as jesus hung on the cross and in his final last moments as death was knocking on the door jesus collects for himself the thief on the way to his own death this is the kind of savior our lord is this man also serves as an illustration of spiritual blindness with which every person who is born into this world suffers. Everyone who is born of woman is is born spiritually blind and is unable to see the truth about themselves or about God and who he is. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Before one is 
regenerated by the Spirit of God, he or she lives in a world of spiritual darkness and is unable to see the truth. The Apostle Paul describes this for us powerfully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, and it is veiled, to those who are perishing, in their case, the God, lowercase g, the devil, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul tells us that there's a double blindness going on, that every unbeliever suffers, that you and I who are believers also once suffered from, that we are blinded by our own sin and we are blinded by the God of this world, the devil. Every unbeliever lives in a world of total darkness and cannot see even what lies before them. And as we look around at current events and look around the world at all that's going on today, we look around and see madness. We see the insanity that is going on even in our own country. It is all led by the blinding of the devil and the people that he uses who are totally and completely spiritually blind and cannot even see the insanity of what it is that they are doing. This is what Jesus saw. And it is what you and I must continue to see to this day if we are to make any sense of the world and the people around us. They are blind. They need to see the light. Second, I want you to notice the purpose. Because God always has purpose. And boy, did he have purpose in this blind man's life. Because Jesus did a lot more than just see. And the blind man's condition created a theological dilemma in the minds of his disciples. They really struggled with this one. It says in verse 2, we read, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be born blind. So, these disciples, they were under the influence of what was the prevailing worldview of Israel at that time. In fact, we probably see this most clearly expressed in the life of Job's friends, who continued to carry on, insisting that there was sin in Job's life. Therefore, is the reason for why he was going through these things. The belief was essentially this, that if somehow you are suffering, it is because that there must be sin somewhere in your life. That all suffering is the result of sin. And we would not object to that. That in itself is true. The Bible says, of course, that through Adam, sin brought absolute catastrophic suffering at every level. And we had to learn from sin. If sin never entered the world, there would be no suffering at all. None. But that's not what the apostles are asking here. They're asking for a direct correlation. They want to know, was it this man's sin or was it his parents? Now, just think about this for a second. This man who was born blind, was it his sin? Right? He would have sinned in his mother's womb. Right? Which is impossible. Or is it his parents' sin? He was born blind. And so Jesus answers their question. Verse 3. Now listen carefully to this. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents. Jesus said, but that, or so that. Now, pause, let those words capture your attention here. So that, he's going to tell us there is divine 
purpose in this man being born blind, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So let's just pause here for a second. There's a lot here. We could have just spent the whole day on on this topic. So the apostles are asking Jesus for an explanation to this man's suffering. But I would suggest to you that they are only looking for a cause. They're looking for the cause. They're thinking in terms of cause and effect. Cause and effect. But Jesus is going to answer them in a completely, let's say, different category. Okay? They want to know who caused this, Jesus, right? Whose past sin was it? Was it this man or was it his parents? Which one of these caused his blindness, Lord? And so they're giving Jesus only two possibilities. Is it the man or is it the parents? Jesus says, neither one of them is right. This suffering, this disability cannot be correlated with either one. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, there are many people who cannot stand what this text seems to say. Namely, that God willed for this baby to be born blind in order to demonstrate the works of God through his child decades later? There are those who think to suggest that, that this is an abomination towards God. To believe that he would do this and to escape from that conclusion, and that is what this text says, so sort of draw attention to the fact that maybe Jesus isn't talking about purpose here, but simply a result. If you're reading this text only to find a cause and not God's purpose, this is how you're going to read this. The result of this man's blindness will be used by God to show his work. The result, the result of this man's blindness, I, I didn't know, it's just the result we stumbled upon this man who is blind, but I'm going to use it to bring glory to God. God didn't do anything. He just found blindness. He just stumbled upon it. He didn't bring it about. He just used it when he found it. And the reason that some people do this is because it goes so deeply against their idea that their kind and loving God could have any kind of divine purpose in a baby being born blind. That's a very low standard of God. God calls us to view a high standard of him. The problem is the Bible rejects that idea of God. We never see God just winging it. He has a plan and a purpose in everything. Everything. And if you try to deny God's sovereign, wise, purposeful control over all of creation, including conception and birth, you have a lot of Bible to fight with. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Psalm 139, verse 13. We all know this verse. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. If God had no purpose... No plan, no design in that baby being born blind, but only found it later and then put it to use for his glory. Then he hasn't answered the disciples' question. But Jesus does answer the question. His explanation lies not in past causes, but in God's future purposes. 
And the Lord is calling them to see the sovereign will and infinite wisdom and glory of God. That this man was born blind was not by accident. Rather, he was to become the very object of the grace of God. And there was a higher purpose in this, even through all of the years of his suffering. He had to be born blind so that the extraordinary works of God might be displayed in him. And I pray that these texts minister to you in this way. I would never want to look upon a person who was blind or who had an ailment and said that God didn't mean you. God has a plan and a purpose exactly for you, exactly how you were made and created and born. You, my friend, are a child of God. And this should minister to us, even through immeasurable amounts of pain and anguish that we go through. Because our God is a God of purpose. Purpose. Notice verse 4. This is a critically important verse for us and still carries with it the theme of divine purpose. I want us to just meditate on this verse for a moment as we go through it word for word, but let me just read it in full first for you. Jesus says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work it. We'll start at the beginning. Notice Jesus says, we. He doesn't say, I. I must work the works of him who sent me. He said, we. We must work the works of him who sent me. Now, this isn't just about Jesus and his disciples to do a certain work. It's about every single disciple right on through the centuries. You can put your name right beside we. We. The next word, must. It means necessary. It is required of us. There is an absolute necessity and a pressing urgency for us to do something. And what is he calling us to do? We must work it. The word work here, it means to labor and to be engaged in a specific work. Notice the next two words, the works. Note that works here is plural. Works. There are many works for the disciples of Christ to perform, and this means to toil and to labor for him who sent me. In other words, we must do God's work. We must not be doing our own agenda, not our own self-serving work, but we must be invested in doing the works that God has assigned for us to do. And what this tells us here is that the Father has sent the Son into the world on a specific mission for only him to accomplish, a specific work, and this work is so inclusive of not only going to the cross and to die for our sins, but to also reveal the Father and to teach the full revelation of Scripture and truth. Christ is the ultimate example of how we should want to live our lives. Jesus had said throughout his gospel that he didn't come to earth just to do his own thing. As Brother John just, John just mentioned, he came to do the Father's will, and that should be also true of us. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see in Scripture that there is a foreordained, predetermined number of works that God the Father has prepared for every believer that we should walk in them. Notice what else Jesus is aware of. Not only is there a specific work for us to do, but there is a limited amount of time in which to do these works. Notice the rest of verse 4. Jesus says that while it is day, day here is a metaphor for the span of one person's life. 
it's a limited, a limited amount of time to perform these works, and there is only so much time. As Jesus says at the end of the verse, for night is coming when no one can work. Night is the metaphor for day. Jesus tells us that there will be an end of the day, the end of our life. And brothers and sisters, the sun is quickly beginning to set. Night is quickly approaching. There is a certain predictability, and it is fast approaching. So then, because of the shortness of life and the suddenness of death, there must be a certain pace about our lives. We should all have a sense of urgency to do the work of God while it is still day. Because night is coming, my friends, when we will no longer be able to do the work. And by these words, Jesus is also acknowledging that he only has so much time left upon this earth. It is now slightly less than six months until he will be crucified upon the cross at Calvary. And rather than slowing down, if anything, Jesus is picking up the pace. He is carrying out the works that his father has prepared for him to do. Psalm 90, verse 12, is a passage that has had great effect on my own spiritual walk. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Only God knows the number of days that we have left, but we're to number them in the sense of we're to count each one of them of enormous value. Each day is a gift that God has given to us. Each day is a day in which we are to glorify God. Each day is a day which we are to do the works that God has prepared for us to do. Ephesians 5 verse 16 says, Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This work of God and the compassion our Lord has is flowing right out of his heart and out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's explaining to his disciples that right before them there is a work that he must now do and heal the blindness of this man. Jesus' main purpose is claimed in verse 5 as he repeats a staggering claim that he made earlier in chapter 8. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This echoes his message in verse 4 that night is coming as the day is passing away. And in that phrase, as long as I'm in the world, you can hear in that Jesus that he has precious little time left here. That while I'm still in the world, I am this unique and special light during this time to the world. That he is the light of the world. He means he is the light unto salvation for those who are living in spiritual darkness. He is the I am, the light of the knowledge of God. I am the light of the way of salvation. I am the light of forgiveness of sins. And so while Jesus is in the world, he must let his light shine. Because the day is fast approaching when he will no longer be in the world in this unique way. And once Jesus has ascended back to heaven, it would then be the works of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples. And they would then become the torchbearers who carry the light of the message of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And to lay out for us this scripture and the words of God. And now here we are 2,000 years later and... That is still what the church is. We're still on mission as light bearers. We are a lampstand. We are to hold forth the light. We are not the light. The light, Christ is the light. But the purpose of the church is to reflect that light, to point to that light, to proclaim and to pre preach his word. And each and every day you shine that light, you're fulfilling your purpose you are fulfilling your works as a follower of Christ as you are functioning as that lampstand up on a hill, sending forth light, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and into this dark and blinded world that desperately needs to see his light. Let his light shine. Verse 6 brings us to our third section as we see the power, the power of Christ. As Jesus shines light into a spiritually darkened world. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Now, (laughs) Jesus didn't use the mud, as some have claimed, for medicinal purposes here. Dirt and clay cannot take away blindness. We're not told why he uses it, but perhaps to show how God works through earthly means to send forth his light into the world. So we read, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. He actually rubs it in, perhaps maybe to his eyelids, and this blind man, which, come on, for anyone standing around him this day, and there was no doubt a large crowd, as there would only be beggars situated at spots where there would be large crowds and the most amount of population coming likely through the gates of the temple as people came to bring their offerings and tithes. And so they're not hiding where no one can see them. And so no doubt there are many others standing there observing Jesus rubbing spit into the dirt and then putting it onto this man's eyes. And from no doubt the watching eyes of the blind world This would have seemed like foolishness to them. This would have looked ridiculous to them. But notice verse 7. Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Again, this would have seemed bizarre. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. God delights in taking a foolish message, Christ crucified, and working through a foolish method of preaching, and working through a foolish messenger, as 1 Corinthians 1 continues to say, not many mighty Not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. A foolish message, a foolish messenger, and a foolish means to turn the world upside down so that all the glory goes to God. In a sense, that is what we're seeing here, a foolish method, a foolish message. Go and wash off. And one that has proceeded to be a foolish messenger in the eyes of the world, Jesus Christ. But Jesus says to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. No doubt (laughs) there were elbows going on amongst the crowd. (laughs) What's he going to say next? Are you kidding me? What's he going to do next? Go rub the mud on your eyes and go rinse it off? But notice at the end of verse 7. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Victory, amen. Immediately, he left blind, and when he came back, he was seeing. It was a miracle of God's grace-filled power. It's God's compassion put on full display. This was a work of God predestined before the foundations of the world that Jesus must perform. And don't miss the point of this. Yes, it's to document that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. That this was who Isaiah had spoken about and Abraham, and Jacob, and David, yes. And it was also to demonstrate the the compassion of God. But there's way more on the table here. This miracle is a picture of a far greater miracle that God performs every single 
day on planet Earth is the miracle of the new birth. In which God gives spiritual eyes to see the gospel of truth and to be born into the family of God. Can't you not hear John Newton's amazing grace? I once was blind, but now I see. Beloved, the new birth is an eye-opening experience. It enables you to see what you could have never otherwise seen. You and I were living in total darkness with our eyes closed with the veil, as Paul describes it, over our eyes. We were in such a darkness we couldn't even see if our own hand was right there in front of us before our eyes, spiritually speaking. Until God dramatically intervened and in a moment he gave us eyes to see. And he shined light into our darkened hearts. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is, what a great text. Just love this text as you, as you hear me read this to you. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light, is the same God who at the appointed time of your existence here on earth spoke light and commanded light to shine into your darkened hearts. And in that moment, you were blessed eyes and you were birthed into the kingdom of God. We didn't hear ourselves. It was the supernatural work of God. Has God done this in your life? Has God sent you to the pool of Siloam to go wash your eyes, to wash away that filth and the, the dirt through your senses? Has he granted you spiritual sight to see? If not, call out upon him and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. Give me sight to see. As we finish this section today, I want you to notice number four in the perplexity that this left the crowd in. The healing of this Blind man understandably caused quite a sensation among some of the neighbors. It says there in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? The people were beside themselves. They're thinking, how on earth did this happen? This is impossible. This is two separate groups. But both his neighbors and those who had walked past this man before can't believe it. Is this not the man who used to sit here and beg? It, it, it anticipates a positive answer. Yes, this is the one. But how is it that he sees? Verse 9. Some said, it, it is he. They don't even put it in the form of a question. There's no doubt about it. I see this man every day. I've been giving him food and, and money. That's him. But others said, no, but he is like him. In other words, this cannot possibly be the same man. This has to be someone who, who just looks like him. It's impossible. And notice, he kept saying, I am the man. I am the one. It is I. I can see. Hello, it is me. Verse 10. 
So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? This is so incomprehensible from their human perspective. There is no natural explanation for this. Verse 11, he answered them, the the man called Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. All I did was, I did what he told me to do. So I went and washed and received my sight. Even the blind man cannot come up with words to explain what has happened in his life. And no one standing there that day can just put this whole thing together. This is uncomprehensible. The change of life that defies any human rationale or reason. There's no scientific explanation here for what just happened. The natural met with the supernatural So this dramatic change that took place in this man's life is but a picture of the same radical change that takes place in the life, hear me, of everyone who is born again. And I want to give you five words to end this message today that we see pictured within this story and that also takes place in the new birth. Number one, this change happens immediately. This wasn't gradual. The miracle didn't take place over several days. He left blind and he returned with sight. The miracle took place in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And so it is with a new birth. On the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 souls who were saved. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 47 The Bible says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Some were being saved on Monday. Others were being saved on Tuesday. Still, others were being saved on Friday. And though some of us go through what you might call the drawing of the Holy Spirit over a period of time, There is always a moment in time in which someone is birthed into the kingdom of heaven. Just as a pregnant mother goes through a period of labor, eventually there's an exact moment of birth when your child is born. It's like a a lightning bolt out of heaven that strikes a dry and hardened heart. It's an immediate change. I was dead and now I am alive. We don't have a lukewarm middle. Second, it's a radical change. It's not a a slight transformation that takes place. It's not just a minimal change. No, this is a total and complete remaking of this man's life. And as we'll see next week, Jesus doesn't just give him a physical sight. God grants him spiritual life. This man now has new life. Before his encounter with Jesus, he had a a blind, dead existence before him. But now this man has eternal life. It couldn't be any more radical to go from darkness to light. From uh, hell to heaven. (laughs) It's radical change. And so it is with the new birth. Third, It's a noticeable change. (laughs) Everyone could see that this man's life had been changed. All the neighbors, all the people who walked by, everyone saw the difference in this man's life. It was obvious. It was apparent. And so it is when we are born again. You you can't hide it. You can't conceal it. Every good tree bears good fruit. The evidence of these new births will be seen by others who are around you. There are no secret agents in the army of God. No undercover agents. You can't hide it. You've got to tell somebody. Number four, it is supernatural. There's no self-help class that could make this man see. There's no therapy session with Oprah that could give him sight. 
No, this was a work of God. Only Jesus could heal this man's blindness. Only Jesus could give him eyes to see. There's no natural explanation for this. The only explanation is this was a supernatural work of God. And the last thing I want you to see, it was necessary. Necessary. It's a, it's a necessary change if this man was to ever see. He must become a miracle. And so it is with the new birth. It is absolutely necessary in order for you to see. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Apart from the new birth, you'll always be outside the kingdom. Apart from the new birth, you'll always be in darkness as it relates to spiritual truth. It's absolutely necessary to be born again, to be birthed into the kingdom of heaven. This man then becomes the object lesson for each and every one of us of what must happen in our lives. And this is something that only Jesus can do in your life. So, I'll ask you again, wherever you are today, have you been born again? Have you been given the spiritual sight to now see? If you have never been birthed from above by the Holy Spirit, I would urge you this very moment, call on the name of the Lord. Beg for him. The good news is, Jesus still gives sight today. Jesus is still working. He's still healing. He's still turning life upside down. He tells people all the time, go and wash at the pool of Siloam. And they come back seeing. Cry out Jesus to wash that filth away. For we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet our God is faithful. He is merciful. And he's increasingly able. Come to Jesus today if that is your prayer this morning or or you have any other prayers that you need this morning, we would invite you to come forward. And the rest of you, I invite you to please stand and sing as we sing that song of invitation, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.